Welcome to the Shelbourne Knee Center Podcast. This is Dr. Benner, and this is episode 27 of the Shelbourne Knee Center Podcast. Scott Bauman, my co-host, is here with me tonight, and we have another great guest and another great topic to discuss tonight. If you want to find all of our content, you can find us on social media, on Instagram and Twitter at the SKC Podcast. You can find our Facebook and YouTube pages uh, with all of our content on it as well, and you can get our podcast wherever you get your podcasts, at Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and uh, wherever else you get your podcasts from. If you like the content, that you've heard so far make sure to follow along so you don't miss any and feel free to leave us a positive review if you have one so that those that come behind you can learn about it as well and if you missed last week's episode i highly recommend you go back it was a great episode we had dr fred kushner on from hss we discussed technology and total knees so i think it's a good uh precursor to to this one and uh similar to the one we had a couple weeks ago with dr jim ballard from oregon talking about robotics uh talking about these different nuances with total knees uh before we get into tonight's topic tonight we have the first in a in a set of episodes two episode series about alignment and total knee replacement and this is something that's been a hot topic for quite a while and we really have, uh, you know, the godfather of the kinematic alignment technique, Dr. Stephen Howell, along with us tonight. Dr. Howell is an adjunct professor at the Department of Biomedical Engineering at the University of California in Davis, in Davis, Colorado. He works at Adventist Health and Lodi Memorial Hospital in Lodi, California. Uh, he's a consultant for Medacta International on their knee replacement uh, knee replacement platforms, and uh, he has been uh, all around the world talking about kinematic alignment. Very well published in this area, so we're happy to. To have Dr. Stephen Howell with us tonight. Dr. Howell, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Dr. Benner and uh, Dr. Bauman for inviting me tonight. It's always fun to talk about uh, things that are that are dear to us, and, and kinematic alignment is one of them for me. Yeah, well, let's jump right in. Uh, how did you initially start to think about total knee alignment in a different way? I assume you trained like everybody else did, that parallel and uh, parallel and perpendicular was the way that knee replacement went. And uh, at some point, you had to start to think about it in a little bit of a different way. So what was kind of the, the genesis of all this uh, kinematic alignment that you've been talking about for quite some years now? Well, you know, 2006 was sort of when the light bulb came on. And uh, I could never really figure out when I why, when I finished a case, I couldn't really predict whether the patient would do well or not. And then, uh, you know, with our ACL work, we learned that if we had our tunnels in the wrong place, we'd lose motion. Uh, an anterior tunnel would lead to roof impingement and a vertical tunnel PCL impingement. You couldn't get the knee to move. So I asked myself a question, you know, if the knee parts we're putting in look like a knee, what's the reason we have trouble gaining motion and satisfaction? And my conclusion was we we're putting the parts in crooked. Uh, and I'll put that in quotation marks. So, I was very fortunate in 2006 to meet up with uh, two engineers, Dr. Uh, Charlie Chi and Ben Park, and we developed the first PSI system, a patient-specific instrumentation system with uh, plastic cutting guides that we machined. And by default back then, uh, we decided to essentially follow the principle of kinematic alignment, which is resurface the patient's prearthritic knee, as simple as that. And uh, so we, we launched that product and uh, we were able to get a little traction on it, uh, but then the FDA took us off the market in 2009 because they thought it was not an equivalent uh, alignment to what was on the market and was unsafe at the time. Now, you said 2006 is really when this started everything, and you started going down that road of, of trying to find a different alignment. Was there any research at the time or anything in the literature that led you to believe that the conventional alignment may not be the best for TKA? Oh, yeah. I mean, there was there were three seminal articles right around the time. One was the article by uh, Don Eckhoff, and the second author on that's Joel Bach, and he was our PhD student in biomedical and mechanical engineering at UC Davis. 
And uh, that's when they did the CT scans and they said, well, number one, there's a single axis in the femur about which a tibia flexes and extends. And that axis is, you know, through the center of, you can either do best fit spheres or a cylinder. Um, and, and the point they made is the orientation of that axis had nothing to do with the femoral head and ankle. That orientation was parallel to the joint line. So right then and there, I knew that the femoral head and ankle were about as useful, useful in aligning the knee as looking at the anesthesia machine in the operating room. I mean, it has no bearing on how the knee works. So then there was an article by Coughlin that found the axis in the femur about which the patella flexes and extends. And that was confirmed by another author named Iran Poor after out of Imperial College in London. They found that that axis was parallel to the first axis, which was also parallel to the flexed extension plane of the knee. And if oh, prior to that in 93, an article by Ann Hollister, it's really amazing. She was a hand surgeon, and she's the one that found the instantaneous uh, flexion extension axis in the femur for the knee and also for the ankle. And, and that article we used to build our knee testing machine that we used for 20 years before 2006 came up. So we knew there was a single axis. We knew there was a consequence when we were placing our knees in the knee testing machine. If the axis of the knee didn't co-align with the axis of the machine, we got what's called coupled motions and all kinds of disastrous things. And so it was just a very simple concept. And one, to be honest with you, I think everybody, when you step back from our dogmatic teaching, really understands. I mean, we do that when we do hip replacement. We're really trying to resurface the hip, you know, restore the length, the version, offset, blah, blah, blah. And we do that in shoulder replacement. The only joint that we don't do it in is the knee. So how long of a process was that for when you started to think about this maybe in a different way before you actually started incorporating it into your total knee procedure? Oh, this, this will shock you. So uh, all this went down. These papers came around in uh, 2005. And another one by Siston. Siston had a paper which showed that, you know, he gave, a, I think it was 11 surgeons at Stanford Fellows and attendings a robot machine or not a robot, but a nav machine. So here, here, pick the IE axis of the femur. And then nobody was anything close to being consistent with each other with huge variability. So that also told me that they couldn't set the IE right. And, and, and so when we sat down with these two engineers, that, that they, that they, one walked in, he said, I've got this, uh, this piece of plastic, and, and I machined it to fit the end of a femur. And he says, I think that we can make the distal cut in total knee replacement. And that was in December. And, and he came and visited Professor Hull and I in the lab at Davis. And you know, I looked at him. I said, you can do the whole knee. And we did the first femoral guide four weeks later. We did MRIs, segmented, made 3D models, and then we shape fit the implant uh, to the surface. And this was all done with uh, off-the-shelf open source software off the internet. And then we, at that time, we did uh, we did 3D printing, and we had the femoral guide made. And it was Mrs. Claire Finocchio who passed away, so I can use her name. But uh, you know, I, I walked up the next day, and she's sitting there with a smile and the knees zero to 100 degrees. And I, I mean, I'd never seen that. And so we added the tibial cut. Uh, a month after that. So conceptually, uh, from the time that we sat down in mid-December, we were done by mid-February. Wow. Yeah, you're right. That shocks me. <laughs> yeah. that's, pretty, that's, yeah. really, that's, that's really fast. And then, pretty incredible. Yeah. And then, you know, then we're sitting there, oh, how are we going to, you know, I, we, we got to do more of them. I got to understand it more. So we would, I only was doing three total knees a week. They were all on Tuesday. And so we'd sit together and, and then we'd plan one of them for the following week. And, and uh, right around April, 
we thought, well, I think we have something here that's useful. So we ended up going out and building a little manufacturing facility, running some space. I gave the company a loan to do that. And then we got venture capital funding and we were off and running in the fall. And, and so it was really a heady, fun time. But, you know, all, all the other implant companies copied us, but they made the mistake of doing mechanical alignment. So the actual value of it was, uh, was not so evident. Now, in that early time point, when you were transitioning to this to this newer method, what types of things early on did you feel like you, you needed to improve or were you struggling with or, or vice versa? What types of things do you think, wow, that's really working well. Let's learn from that and keep keep doing more of it. Was there anything early on that really taught you more as you went forward with this? Yeah, I, I mean, certainly early on, I was a little worried what our what what you know what would happen if our patients didn't do well and end up somewhere else, you know. <laughs> and they look and and we we had post op X rays and and at the time I wasn't doing long limb in 2006. I started getting post op long legs in 2007 January. But you know, people look at films. Well, what's this guy doing? And uh, so it was a process. And one of the ways that I sort of tried to justify it is I would put on the manual guide and I'd set it whatever the angle five degrees valgus and put it down. And then I'd take my saw blade and just score the top of the femur. So I knew where the cut would be. And then I put my guide on and put the score mark and take it off. And what's the difference? Two degrees, a millimeter, two here and there. And then I asked myself a simple question. Could I have gotten to that position with my with the metal instruments that I got when I was a PSI guy by just changing, you know, the angle and the starting hole and all this. And then it was very evident that we weren't really going wild, you know, in terms of changing things. And I think all the randomized trials have shown that. I mean, the limb alignment, K and MA uh, post-op is essentially the same, but we restore the joint line obliquity. And the joint line obliquity is, is very important because if you change it distally and you change and you don't change it posteriorly, then you're going to get kinematic conflict in compartments, something gets tight or loose when it shouldn't. And that leads to your motion problems. Yeah. How many of these, how many total knees have you done with, with kinematic alignment? Would you say at the, uh, up to this point? I know, you know, I know uh, your previous work and the reason that, that, that we know each other is because you, your colleagues with uh, Dr. Don Shelbourne, my, uh, my, my mentor and my, uh, the boss at the Shelbourne Knee Center. And um, I know you did a lot of work earlier in, uh, in your career with ACL reconstructions and, um, and now have maybe transitioned more towards kinematic alignment and total knee. So uh, how many knee replacements were you doing kind of earlier on in your career versus how many you've done with kinematic alignment now? Well, I mean, that is, uh, that, that sort of brings me back thinking in 2006, what was I? I was a ligament surgeon, mm -hmm. you know, but I was always fairly well trained in joint replacement because I did my residency at the Rothman Institute. And, uh, and, and so at the time, you know, the best I ever did, I was no Don Schilbert, I did 160 ACLs a year. Mm -hmm. and you make a mistake 5% of a time, uh, it was 160, maybe you got seven, eight, nine patients. And then in 2006, I did 110 or 20, and then I put got the PSI guides, and the next year I did 237, and the next year I did 400, and I've been four to 500 to 550 since 2008. So I've done close to 7,000 of these, and I've done all comers with, you know, there is this concept of restricted kinematic alignment, and and I frankly don't don't really care for the term or inverted kinematic alignment. I mean, those are those are terms that people coined. But it sort of implies there's different types of kinematic alignment. In my view, there's only one. Either you resurface the knee or you don't. So the practitioners of the other two techniques, which they're certainly welcome to, to proceed with, should maybe really call expanded mechanical alignment because they don't strive to align the implants 
rotational axes uh, coincident with those of the patients because they're changing the joint line when they put the implants on. How do you reconcile then implant design features with what you do with kinematic alignment? I guess by reconcile, I just mean, do you do anything different? Um, is there different design features with kinematic alignment um, that you think are really important to the technique being, you know, really, really, you know, getting the most out of, uh, out of what it can? And how do you incorporate that into your implant design choices? Yeah, I, I'm sitting here shaking my head and, and uh, because, you know, we, uh, the professor and I always let me make very clear, Professor Maury Hall is a distinguished professor. He's now, quote, retired, but he's not. Uh, and I've worked closely with him since, um, I don't know, uh, 19, uh, 1989. And so we had a huge experience in the in the ACL world. And, uh, and so when we started doing kinematic alignment together, all the implants we used and I'll go through the list in a moment, we're all essentially the same. So my first uh, my first 900 were Vanguard CRs. My next uh, 1,300 were Stryker uh, Triathlon CRs. Then I did Depuce Sigma uh, CRs. Then I did Persona CRs. And the professor and I, we would look at each other, and we said, you know, they really had much difference. I mean, we couldn't mm-hmm. see a bump, you know, from the implant design that one outperformed the other. And so, consequently, we really said eh, the implant design with what we have really doesn't make much difference. Kinematic alignment moves the needle. And we have, there's two studies. One we did, it's written by Shelton, another one by Yaron Barzi from Israel, where we had patients that had MA uh, total knees on one side, we did K on the other. And, uh, you know, you, you ask them, uh, what, what did you think of the experience? And, and it's funny, when you look at the Oxford knee scores, at the final follow-up, they're the same in both knees, but the forgotten joint scores, 15, 18, 20 points higher. And, and then you ask them, okay, which knee did you prefer? And, you know, in our own study, about 53% preferred the KA and about 40% thought both were the same. Why? Because I think MA, in a fair amount of time, get, get, gets the knee in with sort of, if you will, kinematic alignment positioning. And, of course, the recovery was faster and it was less painful and so forth and so on. And so that's why, as a ligament surgeon and not what what you would call the best place in Sacramento in terms of the hospital system, I grew this total joint business in overnight, more or less, in a year or two from nothing, 80, 100 a year to 400 a year. And, uh, you know, it's just been a lot of fun. So to get back to your question, is there an implant design We've, the, I think industry, and rightfully so, are moving towards uh, the medial ball and socket concept. And so, you know, why are we doing that? Because the one thing that the total knees that are low-conforming medial lateral, uh, they're like a medial menisectomized knee. You know, they, 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 they're not unstable, but I, I, I like to use the term micro-instability, meaning they've got this AP shucking going on between the femur and tibia. And, you know, you don't see it in the 75-year-old that you operate on who's doing 75-year-old things, but you see it in the 7-year-old that wants to do 60-year-old things and the 60-year-old that wants to do 50-year-old things. And they go hiking and they go play pickleball and blah, blah, blah. And they come in and say, Doc, you know, you know my, my, my knee hurts. When's it hurt? Well, when I'm playing these sports. And then you, you say, okay, well, why don't you stop playing the sports? And, you know, can we do better than that? And when you put a medial ball and socket in, then the AP movement is gone. And, uh, and, and that, uh, there's, there's two studies, uh, randomized trials, um, one by French out of, uh, out of Australia. CR, one arm was, a, uh, I mean, kinematic alignment, both groups. One was a CR, Vanguard. The other one was a safe knee, which is medial ball and socket. 
and at a year, I've forgotten Joy Square, I forget exactly, but it was about 15 points higher. Mm-hmm. And then Dave Scott, uh, he had a study, very similar design, KA in both groups, one with PS and one with ball and socket. And again, the forgotten joint score was higher with the ball and socket and the flexion was better. So so I do think design takes KA and moves it to another level and the two have a synergistic effect. That's a great explanation of the implant design and how it factors into kinematic alignment. Now let's switch gears a little bit to the patient side of things. Are there any patient characteristics? I know you mentioned activity levels when the seven-year-old wants to do 60-year-old things and the six-year-old wants to do 50-year-old things, but are there any other specific patient characteristics or alignment parameters for the patient that make the patients a good or a bad candidate for kinematic alignment? No, I, I think everybody's a great kinematic. I mean, I, as I said, I have done kinematic alignment. So there, there's two ways to restrict kinematic alignment, if you will. One is to restrict who you do you know, maybe based off some preoperative alignment. You say, okay, a certain valgus beyond that value, I don't want to do it, or certain varus or a certain flexion contraction. Then there's the other restriction, which is I'm going to do it, but, oh, I don't like how far this component's going in in terms of varus or valgus or uh, the tibia varus valgus, so I'm going to restrict how I execute the operation. So I have neither restricted the preoperative indications and the degree of correction. I followed on everybody. And, and you know, we can talk about the, the more rare cases, the multiple level deformities and so forth. But, you know, the majority of those uh, I do as well because the patient's used to the deformity. Usually it's an old fracture or an old osteotomy. And they're used to the leg being a little crooked. And you can have the discussion with them. You know, I can try to make your leg straight. I'm going to have to cut some ligaments and blah, blah, blah. And you might not like the knee that well, or I can put it in kinematic alignment, straighten it a little bit, but not as much as back to a normal alignment. But I think you'll like the knee better. And and that's what I've done for, for well, what is it, 06? And here we are, 18. Is that 18 years? Am I doing the math right? Yeah, starting up on 18 years. It's a long mm-hmm. time. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, one question I've always, I've heard you speak about this before and you talk about the pre-arthritic state and uh, a couple questions I've had about that. One, how, how do we know what the pre-arthritic state is if the other knee is not a normal knee? Obviously, if the patient has a pre-arthritic knee on the opposite knee, then we have then we have an, an, a way to be able to actually get some imaging of that and, and potentially quantify that and use that to make our resections and things like that. Uh, but how do we know what that pre-arthritic or arthritic state is? So, you know, uh, one of the things we learned, so you can imagine, at least for the first uh, three years when I did the PSI, I had MRIs on everybody. And uh, and we continued to get them for a while for planning purposes and everything else. Mm-hmm. But what you sort of understand is that in terms of the bone, at the zero degree position at the distal end of the femur, where our distal referencing guides are placed, and post here at 90, there's really, uh, there's really no bone wear. And you say, well, how can you say that? I mean, I see these terrible deformities. I said, well, yeah, but when you have a bad flexion contracture, the end of the femur can't wear. I mean, the bone can't wear because the person never puts weight on it because they got a 15, 20 degree flexion contracture. So we had a series, and and, and this is all measured and reported by Dennis Nam from uh, WashU. He got a bunch of our images and, and measured them up. And we were looking for wear in those locations, and we didn't see it. Now, you have these special cases with an old infection you know, and so, or a big osteochondral defect, and in that case, an imaging study can help you a little to plan your cuts. But, but we also make the assumption that the cartilage thickness is 2 millimeters. Now, the average that we measured was 1.8. Some others have said it's 2.2. Uh, and then, of course, there's a little bit of range. But it's funny, when you get into the older age group, um, you know, I, I think the cartilage gets 
it's not like it disappears, but it may get a little attritional because you don't see a lot of variability. You can take your hot knife and, and just burn through the cartilage and say, you know, everything's about two millimeters. So when we have cartilage missing or we have, say, in a distal medial side, oh, it looks like the cartilage isn't so good. We'll just take a ring curette and take it down to bone and we back build it two millimeters. So I had a bunch of people in the office today. I think I signed up 11 and seven of them need the other side done. And I would work from 2.30, from 9.30 to 2.30. You know, it's just simple stuff. And and, and the person says, well, how do you know where, where, how to put it in? And I said, well, I, I said, I'm looking at your knee. I can tell you right now, you've got a virus knee. Your distal medial cut's going to be six. Your distal medial cut's going to be eight. Your posterior medial cut will be five or seven, depending on whether the cartilage is gone, because I'll put a shim in if there is. And the posterior lateral side will be seven. I don't ever put an x-ray up in the operating room. I don't ever look at an image before I do the knee unless there's hardware in there or some weird thing, you know. Mm -hmm. So if I see some big scar on the knee in the pre-op area, I'll say, I'll pull the films up and take a look. I don't have any information that I need from the x-ray. I just look at the knee. I'm like a dentist trying to put a crown on a tooth. Our operation is a millimeter operation. We have no angles involved. Now, that's in contrast to mechanical, reverse kinematic, or whatever these other ones are, uh, functional alignment. They're angular operations. And I can tell you that I think we hit a millimeter target, I'm confident of this by our publications, much more accurately than a robot can ever put a knee in. Because when I make the plan, I bolt my guides to the femur and I make the cut. And then I take a caliper, which costs about 10 bucks, and I measure the piece. And if I miss, I rarely miss more than a millimeter. And if I miss a millimeter, I cut too little, I'll shave a millimeter off. And, and if I say a distal cut, I wanted to get six and I got seven, I'll put a one millimeter spacer in the four and one block, kick it out and fill it with cement. So it's rare that we don't get that femur exactly where it's supposed to go. And, and that is the foundation. And then you cut the tibia. So all the balancing is tibial sided. You set the VV of the tibial resection so that in full extension, initially with a spacer block, there's no VV laxity. Mm -hmm. And as long as you rid yourself of the peripheral osteophytes, and you have to make the assumption the collateral ligaments don't stretch, but that's been proven now over six, 7,000 knees, it's rare to ever see that, that then you, by default, if the femur's right, and you got the rectangular tight extension space, then the tibia VV is right, and you restore the native limb alignment. And we have all those publications with long leg CT showing that that's exactly what happens. So here's a question that I guess I've always kind of wondered in wondered in response to that is the, the, I think the 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 criticism of people who talked when people started to talk about custom implants as opposed to off the shelf implants or kinematic alignment as it relates to mechanical alignment and always having the same target versus finding where the knee wants to be. I think the 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 question for people like me who still do conventional, largely conventional alignment is that. I'm putting the knee in the same target for everybody, regardless of where they came from. My question to you is, if we don't think that people have bone wear and we think that people have two millimeters of cartilage loss and we use those as assumptions, what's different about those assumptions than the ones that I'm making in trying to get every knee to zero degrees? Well, because you're changing the joint line. So here's a, there's a paper is published by, first author is Rack, R-A-K. It was published in KSSTA in 2023. And the co-author is my partner, Dr. Nedapil, who trained initially in Germany and then came to the States. So he goes back and he says, hey, fellas, you guys are all MA guys. You're good. You've been at it for 20 years. Would you mind doing 120 knees? Each do 30. And during the operation, we'd like you to measure the pieces that you take off. 
And they all sort of did the standard five degree valgus cut and externally rotated the thermal component. And then by knowing what the cartilage was, we could back work uh, numerically, you know, where the joint line, how much it deviated from the prearthritic surface by definition. And so what you find is uh, about 15% of the time, the distal medial posterior joint lines restored. Those forgotten joint scores were like 70 or something like that. But 85% of the time, and you can imagine why this would take place, and I can explain it in a moment, you over-resect distal medial and you over-resect posterior medial. So when mm -hmm. that resection is a millimeter or more, your forgotten joint score drops 35 points, your Oxford score drops about 10, and your world max score drops, I forget what it was, but something like 20. So you're already out of the ball game when you make those cuts on the femur. And our phenotype work from Mike Hirschman out of Basel in, the, in publishing KSSTA, when, when you look at the variety of distal lateral femoral angles and you do a mechanical cut, you end up making 85 or so percent of those femurs in more varus than you started with. And to me, that's where the varus tibial component failure comes with MA. It's not the tibial cut. It's you're varicizing all these femurs. And of course, then when you externally rotate, you end up over-resecting posterior medial relative to the prearthritic joint line and under-resecting uh, posterior lateral. So we had no relationship. There was no relationship with outcomes or those outcome scores with the lateral resection, only the medial side. So it tells me that distal medial, posterior medial, we've got to make a strong approach to restoring that position. And there was a spinoff study published in a different journal where they looked at phenotypes. So when the phenotype changed by one more category, you had a big loss of those scores as well. So in my view, if you want to know whether that knee is going to work, it's not what angle you measure in the operating room. It's not what angle that you measure in the post-op x-ray. It's the change in the position of the part relative to where it should be. And there's where the clue comes from. And that's what we saw with this MA study. So, you know, you really increase the likelihood that you'll get a more uniform patient recovery if you more uniformly resurface the patient's knee. And really, you have to think about MA, you do it sometimes. Those are the cases generally, mm -hmm. you know, where they do very well. Another question I had from a surgical technique perspective, I'm of the opinion that one of the big mistakes that we make in 2024 with component alignment that leads to bad patient outcomes is with tibial component rotation. I see a lot of patients that come to me that say, Dr. Benner, somebody else down the road did my total knee replacement and my knee's not good and it's really stiff I got, and, and, and it's it's never been a good knee from the moment that I got it. Uh, and they may be a year or two out. They say, I've, I've my knee's worse than it was before surgery. I keep going back to the doctor. I go back at six months. They say, you know, it, it sometimes takes a year before you get better. Then I went back at a year and they say, you know what? Sometimes it takes 18 months and then it's two years. And that, that timeline of just wait a little bit longer and maybe it'll get better just keeps getting longer and longer. And, and they come to my office and they have good looking x-rays, uh, well-aligned implants, well-fixed implants. They have um, generally good, good, um, good ligament stability, although maybe a little bit of lateral ligament stability I do find in, in these patients that are malrotated. And I get a CT scan and there's a significant amount of internal rotation of the tibial component. And I've had good results with those patients that, that come to revision with changing the rotation of their tibial component, improving their range of motion, making their stability better and getting them a better knee. Now, unfortunately, as you as you know, I don't know if you do any revisions, but if you do a lot of revision surgery, I know I've learned over time, I can make them better. I don't know if I can make them good uh, mm -hmm. necessarily. Um, so I think that's a place where uh, we still miss the mark a lot, you know, in addition to the other alignment parameters you're talking 
talking about with component rotation. So that's one thing I wanted to ask you about. Uh, we, we, a lot of the, the, the alignment that we're talking about with joint line obliquity, femoral component rotation, um, posterior slope, all those kind of things. How do you set your tibial component rotation? Yeah, so, so we've done a lot of work with this. You know, when we first did the Otis knee, the way we set the tibial component is in the 3D models, we just align the tibia back to the femur. We put the femoral component on the on the femur, and we put the tibial component on the femoral component, and then how that sat on the tibia set the IE. And during those days, we had the Vanguard CR, the the, uh, the Strucker Triathlon CR, the Depuce Sigma. Those were um, symmetric tibial base plates. So you really had the ability to sort of rotate it in different directions. And we did a lot of axial CTs and looking at this and seeing what the deviation would do in terms of causing motion problem. So then uh, we went to the persona for a while. I thought, oh, okay, you know, it's an anatomic base plate. And so we best fit it. And then we find that unfortunately that particular knee, the base plate fits great to the tibia, but it was designed so that by the mechanical alignment surgeon, so that the AP axis of the plastic when it's placed is oriented between the middle of the PCL fossa to the medial third of the tibial tubercle. Mm -hmm. And so that's fine. But on average, the flexion extension of the plane of the knee, which is a plane that is perpendicular to the distal and posterior joint lines of the femur, when you propagate that to the tibia and centralize it medial lateral, it points to the medial border of the tibial medial border of the tibial tubercle. So when you put on that type of anatomic base plate, you end up as sort of externally rotating it uh, too much relative to what we do with kinematic alignment. So then you need to have a base plate, which, you know, has that AP axis in the right spot. So that's one feature. So for us, uh, with the medactam base plate we do, surprisingly, that actually lines up pretty close to the right spot. Now, the other thing about rotation, I, you know, one of the things I think the in the next 10, 15 years, uh, we all would agree, I think, that we want our patients to get as much flexion and as extension as close to the pre-arthritic as we can. And Don Shelbourne was a big proponent of that with his ACLs and getting extension back uh, with his uh, physical therapy. Don't you think it's just important to get normal internal external rotation? And I think this is what can happen is that we know normally that in full extension, there's a screw home. Uh, and the tibia might actually rotate, let's just say five, seven degrees, just throw a number out. You get to 90, and relative to that, it's internally rotated on average in a normal knee about 15 degrees. So the arc's about 20. Now, when you look at implant design, when you have two low conforming sockets, you know, it's not really fit medial side. When you flex the knee to about 30, 40 degrees, then the tibia is trying to internally rotate, but it stops because of the posterior lip. It's a chalk block effect. And that then forces the tibia won't internally rotate, but it strives to. It forces the medial femoral condyle to go anterior. And we have this in in vivo squatting and kneeling studies and have shown this. But when you use a flat lateral insert, and you can't use a flat lateral insert unless you have a true full one-to-one -one ratio on the medial side. Because with the Medacta insert, we had a little transitional one we used for a year or so, and it was not a true ball and socket because we were afraid when we retained a PCL that we might get too much stiffness. And we found that wasn't the case. So we went to a full ball and socket about 19, 2021. Now the lateral side is the freedom to move. And that's where I think, you know, gap balancers might have recognized this. You know, some I got a little slop on the medial side. If I actually rotate a little bit, tighten the lateral side inflection, I'm going to be able to harness that lateral stability. But the reason you're doing this is because you don't have the medial stability. 
So this is back to that question you had about implant design. Um, I think that we're, we're, we're now getting a morphology of the implant, which replicates the native knee. We all know that the medial meniscus is pretty well attached to the periphery of the tibia by the coronary ligament. And it is truly a socket Freeman and Pinskarova showed that. And then when you go into deep flexion, you can see it in MRI studies, the lateral meniscus falls off the back. And so the lateral meniscus is load-bearing but not stabilizing. You, oh, The old selective cutting studies back in the 80s and 90s, you, you cut the lateral meniscus, that didn't change anything because it wasn't stabilizing anything. But it's, it's So if you add lips laterally, anterior lip blocks external rotation, posterior lip blocks internal rotation, and that's the person, I think, that comes in and sees you, and they say, doctor, my knee's stiff. And then you say, okay, let, let me take a look. And then you say, Mary, Mary, I would like you to bend your good knee. And they bend the thing normally. It's just called 125 degrees. And said, so, well, why don't you bend your total knee for me? They get 120 to 25 degrees. And you scratch your head. What you mean stiff? Mary, where does it get stiff? And they'll get to like 90, you know, and they'll go, I feel like I got a tight band around my knee. I, mm-hmm. I feel like there's a stricture there. And I think what's happening is at that 90 degree position, that tibia should be internally rotated. Let's just throw a number out of 10 degrees more than it is. And it can't go. It can't go because the posterior lateral lip of the plastic's blocking it. And if you have low conforming medial, the medial femoral condyles translate a little bit anterior, and it's sort of hitting in that area. So if the tibia doesn't internally rotate enough, the medial retinacular ligaments are too tight. They're too tight. And that's it's almost like doing an Indian burn, you know, on a forearm. It, mm-hmm. It's trying to move, but it can't because you get a you you, you got a mechanical block. So I, I think, you know, I don't know where we'll be in 15 years, but I do think that that there's evidence now, and, and we've been a little ahead of the game only because they've been able to use these implants for the last five years with KA, and others are using them as well. There's a lot of convincing evidence now that the medial stability is crucial. It goes along with the rack paper showing the consequences when you over-resect. You're going to leave the medial side a little bit loose. And, and, and I think we have the chance now that we can address these people that want to be a bit more active, uh, you know, in, in their senior communities and, and, and even the 50 and 6 year old that have the post-traumatic post-ACL, um, you know, severe arthritis. So, Dr. Howell, just to switch gears a little bit and just give you a quick background, I, before moving to the research side of things here at the Shelbourne Knee Center, I was a physical therapist in the office for about seven or eight years. So I've I've rehabbed hundreds of these patients over the years. So naturally, I'm curious about this aspect of care. So my question for you is, have you noticed any differences with the post-op rehab for those with kinematic alignment versus more of the conventional alignment? Well, you might be surprised to hear this, but uh, we will not send a patient to a physical therapist after their knee replacement. They actually tend to hurt our patients. So when a patient wants to know, well, what do I do after surgery? I said, well, here in the post-op area, by the way, all of our patients go home the same day, regardless of age, since uh, July of 2020. Uh, I don't use any peripheral nerve blocks. We just have a block we put around the femur and tibia. It costs 20 bucks. It lasts about 30 hours. And so we show them how to do some flexion extension exercises and our, 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 our word for them. And it's a little bit like what Don said about keeping the leg elevated. The first two weeks, we want you on your back with both legs up on a bolster. But every hour you're awake, we want you to get up and move. Short stuff. Go to the kitchen and come back. Go to the bathroom and come back. Sit. Practice straight and bending your knee. By two weeks, you ought to be off your walker at least around the house. Your knee ought to straighten all the way, bend in 90 degrees. Your staples come out and ease back into life. That's our rehab program. That's our rehab program. 
And we have been doing that, uh, you know, for probably eight, 10 years. We liken it to the anterior hip approach. You know, the hip surgeons have sort of gotten away from a lot of formal post-op therapy and our forgotten joint scores are now up equal to what the anterior hip surgeons are getting. So when the surgeon says to me, well, I like doing total, uh, total hips more than total knee, I said, well, okay, I can understand that. But, but maybe if we gave you a little more insight how to do the total knee, you, you might find that you like doing them even more than doing a total hip because they're a little faster to do. You don't have the x-ray gown on, you know, and so forth and so on. So the rehab becomes really not an issue for us anymore. And that for us, you know, you had a great system there with Don, your, your, your therapist. I knew a lot of them. You were very well organized. You had good communication and, and you were able to really set a good standard, excellent standard in your clinic. But for those of us that get patients that come in from an hour or two away, a lot of times they'll go to the therapist and they get put the MA thing on them. And, you know, you better get moving it or you're going to end up getting a stiff knee. And, you know, I mean, our manipulation rate is down, you know, we do 400 a year. You probably got six or seven and they're being manipulated because they don't have flexion past 105 degrees. I mean, those are the kind of knees that you see. Arthrofibrosis is gone. I mean, arthrofibrosis is not a disease. It's a it's, it's a malposition component causing these secondary changes. So thank you. So, huh? <laughs> I, yeah. I, I, I concur with you there. <laughs> yeah. So so it, it 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 opens up these other possibilities. We have a paper in. I don't know. Maybe someone in the audience is reviewing it. So be kind to it. But we sent it to Journal of Arthroplasty, and and so we uh, I don't know. I had a whole group of patients, a couple hundred of them, and so we said, let's look at the fifty to sixty year olds, the sixty to 70, 70 80, 80 to nineties. And, you know, we get all these uh, Oxfords and, and the Cooses and the Knee Society and blah, blah, and motion stuff. So we have it pre-op and post-op. It's all done on an iPad, so it's pure patient-reported outcomes. So, okay, let's see what happens. Are we seeing differences in improvement at the six-week mark between these age groups? There's none. So we say to the young person, you know, hey, uh, I'll get my knee done. I'm going to get better faster. No, you're not. You're not going to get better any faster than an 80-, 90-year-old. And the 89-year-old comes in and says, you know, I'm really worried. I said, you're going to get better just as fast as a 50- and 60-year-old because it just takes time for stuff to heal. And that's why this idea of sort of less is more in the first week or two because those knees will blow up. And, and, and we've been very fortunate, you know, to get rid of to get to the aspirin protocols because we were seeing some variety of recoveries when back in 2007 and 8 when I was still using some Coumadin. You know, the Coumadin in those days, either you were anticoagulated right Third of the time, you were over anticoagulated, third time under. And when you were over, you got bleeding in the muscle, and those patients had hemophilic-type symptomatology, and those could get stiff. So, you know, nowadays, uh, you know, when we have someone that's on Eliquis or Xeralto, especially for atrial fib, where, you know, the complications are pretty low, you get a 1% risk of, uh, of uh, out of 100 or whatever it is a year, we'll, we'll cut the dose to half for the first two weeks. And we try to get buy-in from the cardiologist on that. Because I don't want to be washing these knees out, and and you know I don't want these people to be terribly miserable at home. So, so yeah. I I think that all of this has sort of fed into to really what is less of a intrusion into our patients' lives. They can do their rehab. They don't, and that worked with COVID. Oh my God, when COVID hit, you know we didn't have to worry about trying to get them to the therapist. Uh, we switched to outpatient because we couldn't bring people in. If you had asked me in June of 2020. Could we do this? I'd say no. And here we are, whatever it is, three and a half years later, my partner and I, we haven't admitted anybody unless they have some sort of an issue, you know, around the time of surgery, which is very far and few between. You know, sometimes I'll put the local block in and knock the paranormal nerve out. And if it's an elderly patient, we have them spend the night, that type of thing. But uh, I would say that 98% of them, all comers, go home the same day. 
Great stuff. Um, I, I want to touch on something you, you brought up a little bit earlier. I've heard surgeons talking in meetings to say, well, I, I think, you know, Steve Howell is on to something. We definitely need to start using, thinking about kinematic alignment, but only to a certain extent and only, only so far. Yeah. I'm, I'm okay. Putting the tibial and tibial component in some varus, but only three degrees, no more than three degrees. And it, it, it's always fascinating to me because I, I, it feels like those, pa those surgeons, don't actually necessarily believe in it like they say they kind of, like they kind of say they believe in it. So what are what are your responses to when you start to hear about restricted kinematic alignment, kinematic alignment only to a certain degree, um, and, and and you hear things like that in meetings? Well, I I think you know we should be indebted to Professor Pascal, you know, Vendatoli from Montreal. Uh, he was the one that that sort of came up with this expanded range of mechanical alignment. Everybody said, we're only gonna go plus or minus three, you know, for our tibia cut and our femoral uh, mechanical alignment and so forth. He said, well, I'll go plus or minus five. So it allowed more people to start exploring uh, getting outside of the comfort of MA. And, and, and then those that do that will often get rid of the guardrails. And so I think that um, there's, there's, there's the issue I mentioned before. I would prefer if you're if you're not willing to do the full correction back to pre-arthritic, then maybe do your MA or restricted or whatever you want in that patient. But if you feel comfortable doing KA, then when you start it, put your KA hat on and follow the KA rules and do it right. Because you're going to find in the issues when you say, I'm going to do the femur, but I'm not going to cut enough varus. Well, what does that do? Then you're too tight medial. The patients get stiff and the lateral side's opening and they stand up and the leg goes titter-totter or you got to cut the MCL and then you leave the leg in valgus. So, so you really can't blend the techniques in my view. Um, and, and so I would say, you know, just stick to what you like to do. And if it's, if it's expanded, open your mind because you're going to find um, that you can do all these patients. Now, valgus knee is maybe a little separate category. Um, because when we do the valgus knee, we restore the pre-arthritic alignment. So when I see that lady in the pre-op area and I have one knee that's out at 15, 20 degrees and the other one's sitting there about eight degrees of valgus, uh, I say to them, they may say, doctor, are you going to straighten my leg? I said, well, yeah, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to straighten it just like you were when you were 20. I said, you've always been a little knock-kneed? Well, I never really noticed that. So we are the knee and my view is a little bit knock-kneed. We're going to take it back and match that. And so that is our target. There is an issue and this is where I think the next with implant design is what's going on with the trochlea. So as you're as you get into what's called now the CPAC categorizations, the three and the six, there's not many sixes, but threes is the valgus knee where the obliquity of the joint line, the medial side is more distal than the lateral. And that is what makes a CPAC three. That subgroup of patients, which is only about 12 percent. Um, are ones that you can get into some issues with KA, not so much from patellar instability, but to get lower scores. Because what happens as the knee gets more valgus, you're putting the femoral component in and the prosthetic trochlear angle starts to swing towards the midline proximally. And the quadriceps vector now becomes uh, lateral to the prosthetic trochlear angle. And the patella has got to do a little dance, you know, to get into the slot. And it's not like it's unstable, but I think we talked a moment ago about retinacular ligament tension. I think it puts the retinacular ligament tension too high. Mm -hmm. So we've now introduced what's called uh, the sphera K. It's a 20-degree prosthetic trochlear angle instead of six, which is the mean for most knees. And, and that, I've got enough experience now. I've got the uh, you know one-year follow-up on 100 
that the that the forgotten joint scores are you know a, a bit higher, and so uh, so I think that that you know there's going to be a lot of investigation in this area, and it should be, and people should question things, um, and, but I think that uh, that we're on the right track, and I think that our knees are definitely doing better now than they were ten years ago. Of course, the question everybody wants to know is, well, if I leave that knee in a little bit of varus, I'm worried about medial tibial collapse. I'm worried about component loosening when we get 10, 15, 20 plus years out of surgery. I know you sent me some some information and doing some looking up on this. I don't think that necessarily has borne itself out. Uh, I personally wonder whether it still may take longer than we've had so far to be able to say for sure that that phenomenon doesn't happen, but I'm sure you probably disagree. So tell me tell me how you respond when people say, I'm just worried about these knees collapsing into varus and loosening in the long term well then i would suggest you to stop doing mechanical alignment because that's the cause of it your femurs are going in varus 85 percent of the femurs will go in varus and only 70 percent of the tibias will be in valgus to the pre-arthritic joint line when you do ma so 15 percent of the time you're stuck with a varus femur and not enough a valgus tibia to compensate you end up with a varus limb when you look at medial lateral tibial compartment forces Unrestricted KA, if you want to use that term, is the only way that can restore the normal medial lateral forces through the motion arc. We've shown that in vivo in cadaveric studies, and we've shown it in vivo as well, both the varus and valgus knee. So MA forces get really high in extension. And fund, and uh, uh, with that thing, functional malalignment, I mean alignment, they get really high forces uh, in flexion through the motion arc because you're tightening down the lateral side. So because we restore native forces, because we haven't fooled with the ligaments, then you would hypothesize you probably have an ideal environment. And it turns out that when you look at RSA, which is the standard the FDA uses, radio stereophotogrammetry, mm-hmm. look at the base plate settling over time, it gives you this window to determine whether that risk is high by looking at data at one or two years. And so we have completed two studies on that now, one with the intermediate ball and socket and one with the ball and socket. And the migration, we've had tibias up to nine degrees of varus on the long limb, and the migration is negligible. And there's no relationship to the angle. So when people say to me, a captain the day-to-day, doctor, how long is my knee going to last? I say, well, why are you asking me that? I say, that's not the question you should ask me. What do you mean? I said, well, you should ask me how long you're going to last. Huh? I said, yeah, in 2007, we did 237 knees. We reported the 16-year follow-up in arthroplasty, urine of arthroplasty a couple of months ago. And uh, Gene Dawson has 13-year follow-up now with his randomized trial, MA versus KA. And, uh, and so, you know, thir- 16 years later, uh, we said, okay, uh, how many reoperations we had? I don't know, I forget the exact number, but it was 8% or something. And, and of those, you know, is typical component, uh, posterior subsidence, posterior edge wear, and patellofemoral issues. Those were generally caused by too much flexion of the femoral component, caused patella tracking issues, and slope that's more than the native slope, which is a surgical technique error. Both of those are. So if I reduce the risk that I make those errors, those problems should technically go away. Mm-hmm. And so I tell the patient that at 16 years, 42% of the patients were dead. They're gone. So I don't really have to worry about implant survivorship anymore unless I'm doing a bunch of 40-year-olds. And the only thing that we've really seen is polywear. And I think it's always for us, for the most part, posterior. And again, if you have a sort of these sort of micro instability things, and it's more common in what size knee, the little teeny heavy ladies, the little teeny heavy ladies only have, you know, 35, 40 millimeter AP placement, uh, 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 base plate and insert front to back. 
And then they're a little chubby in the back, so they get their knee bent, and it forces that tibia forward, and they're sitting on the back of that plastic all day, and they either subside it or they end up with plastic wear, and they'll spin out like an ACL-deficient knee. So so I think that you, you don't flex the femoral component. You match the pre-arthritic slope if you're keeping the PCL, which is my preference. And then, uh, and then those risks really are very, very, very small. So last but not least, last question I have is a little bit of a soapbox that I get on when people start asking me about, about KA and, uh, and about alignment. Um, one of the frustrations I have on any discussion about alignment, and one reason that I was against computer navigation and robotics for a while, and now, now I'm in it, so I, I guess I eventually let my guard down and, and, uh, and embraced it. Um, but uh, one of my things about alignment is, you know, we look at Merrill Ritter's data talking about alignment outliers and we see an increase in failures in people who are alignment outliers. And then we look at the Mayo Clinic data. Mark Pagnano was, I believe, the first author on that paper where it said that their alignment outliers didn't do any worse uh, when it came to survivorship. And then we look at a guy like we're going to have next week on, we're going to have Gil Scuderi talking about one of my mentors from Fellowship talking about uh, mechanical alignment uh, where we're trying to get parallel and perpendicular and and more traditional uh, total knee alignment. And then you're talking about kinematic alignment at a different target uh, than, than than that. So it, it seems to me like we can't decide what our target should be. We can't decide how much it really matters once we get the alignment or don't get the alignment. And it ends up doing with what I think a lot of things end up with in orthopedics, where we try to come up with as many ideas as we can so that by the time we're done, no matter what our, our x-ray looks like afterwards, we can say that it's okay. That, that if it's perfectly mechanically aligned, we can say, you know what, that's how traditionally everybody's done it. Or if it's in some varus, you know what, Steve Howell says that's okay if I leave my tibia in a little bit of varus and everything in between. So I guess, how do you how do you respond to that? Do you feel like that's the, that's the case when you hear people talk about this? And how do I reconcile myself being on this soapbox over and over? When you look at alignment, you have to ask yourself, you know, what is it that determines the alignment is correct? And in my view, a post-operative x-ray of the knee is useless, useless. If you want to know if that knee is going to function well, then get x-rays of both knees and look at your distal femoral line, approximately tibial line, compared to the other side. And if they're pretty close as one plane analysis, you got a good chance. But I have plenty of people that come in with an MA knee and I put it up and I look at the other knee and I, I know they flipped the joint lines and I just have to ask, well, how's your other knee doing? Well, it's doing pretty good. I go, well, how, how was your recovery? Well, you know, it was a long one. Said, okay. Mm-hmm. And when you do KA, and this is how you, you know, this is where I, you know, you're in the practice of medicine or other, sir. I've always been in the practice of medicine. Don's been, always trying to do better this year than last year. Ask yourself the question, is there a medical legal problem doing kinematic alignment? The answer is at least not from Medacta and Zimmer because they mm-hmm. have FDA approval for unrestricted KA. So then you might say to yourself, Let's take an equal position. I, I really think MA, and that's the position you just took, MAK is the same. Then do a study. You don't even have to do it formal. I mean, you could just say every other case, mm-hmm. you know, patient with the last name that begins with, uh, you know, A to, a to M, and I'll do it this way and M to whatever, and then just see what happens. And then you send them over to, to, to Scott Bauman and PT and don't tell them. I'll tell you, mm-hmm. he'll ask you a question. What are you doing different now? And the other thing that helps is you'll find that your post-operative visits go down to nothing. So the patients come back at six weeks. I'd say we don't see 90% of them ever again until they want the other knee done. We don't tell them to come back at a year. I don't tell them to come back at three years. 
because I think it sets a bad impression in their mind that that knee is vulnerable. I said, if that knee's a problem, you'll come see me. So you go out and enjoy your life and you're going to take it with you. And all of a sudden, when you're doing, you know, in my heyday, you know, I was doing uh, 540, I'm down to 400, but I'm doing 10 a week. And, you know, if you got, if you can eliminate a three month or a one year visit on 400 a year, and you're seeing four patients an hour, you've eliminated 100 hours of office hours, and you divide that by 20 a week, you've eliminated five weeks of work. That gives you a chance to do more surgery and see patients less. And when they do come in, they're happy. And I remember Bob Booth saying, you know, my most, the, the, I really hate office hours. I love office hours because compared to when they go and they talk about their friends, I just had a, had a I'll bring it up, I'll read it to you real quickly. But I had a friend that I've known in the, for many years who had a KA knee, and he's been doing KA knees. And uh, he said, uh, okay. So he says, I'm just out from, uh, he called it a Howell-style TKA by a doctor in Louisville I referred him to. Mid-afternoon with zero to 15 motion, no pain. Thank you for the redirection. Oh, yeah, fishing trip, blah, blah, blah. And then he, he texts me today. He's two weeks out. And he says, just another thanks. He said, uh, Result remains fantastic. He made my MA partner follow me, follow up on him because the other surgeon was a few hours away. And uh, as and and says, you know, I'm back flying my airplane at the gym and everything else in two weeks. Now, not everybody is that quick, but you you reduce the the inconsistencies between your patients. And uh, they're off their walkers. They're driving their car. They're back to life. They're in the gym doing their exercises at two weeks. And they start to send you a lot of patients. So you, you, you have more than you ever want to do. It's a real practice builder. And it's a real, if you will, uh, sort of uh, reduces your, your, your volume on your clinic in your post-op state. So life is better. You go home early. You can go watch the games and take care of the teams. Gotcha. Well, thanks, Dr. Howe, for coming on the show again. I appreciate all your insight and all your experience. And uh, I think that's all we got for you tonight. So thanks for taking some time for to some time with us. So I would I would echo that as well. Dr. Howe, thanks a, a ton for coming on and, and telling us about this technique. I, I personally learned a ton, and I think our listeners will as well uh, for this uh, kinematic alignment technique. As always, if you want to hit us up on our social media accounts, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at the SKC Podcast. You can visit our SKC Podcast YouTube and Facebook pages or email us at the SKC Podcast at gmail.com. Tune in for next week's episode. We're going to have some uh, a counterpoint to Dr. Howell's episode today. We're going to have Dr. Gil Scuderi from New York City talking about mechanical alignment and total knee replacement, another one of my mentors from, uh, from Fellowship. And uh, we're looking forward to having uh, him on as well. So thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.